Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Friday, October 8th, 2021. I am John Podhoritz, the editor of Commentary Magazine, inviting you to consider joining us on November 22nd for the 11th annual Commentary Roast, our big benefit a dinner to help keep the lights on and the podcasts coming and the magazine coming and the website coming for Commentary, which is a nonprofit, 501c3, if you attend our roast which is not a cheap ticket, uh, all but the price of your meal is tax deductible. And we have individual tickets and three levels of tables where you can bring eight or 10 people with you. For more details, go to uh, commentary.org slash roast21 and you will get all the information that you need about the roast of Mayor Sully Soloveitchik. Uh, America's foremost Orthodox rabbi, scholar, wit, uh, Jewish column, commentary columnist, uh, Simpsons expert, and 43 years old, and we are going to rake him over the coals for having, for being this level of accomplished at his preposterously young age. So please join us November 22nd in New York City. Details will be shared with you once you agree or sign up to come, commentary.org slash roast21. With me, as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. So the budget cliff... Um, The possibility of the United States defaulting on its debt obligations has been pushed down the road a couple of months as a result of a compromise deal between uh, the Democrats in the Senate and uh, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell and 10 other Republicans, 11 out of the 50 Republicans, agreeing to a uh, deal that brought the, that meant that this, this matter of raising the debt ceiling by a specific amount of money so that it could go into December without us defaulting on our our, our obligations uh, could pass uh, through general regular Senate order, not be blocked by cloture, which requires 60 votes. Uh, you know, if you, if you can't get 60 votes for something, then the bill is frozen and they got 61. Um, uh, and this is a very interesting and highly complicated matter. As, of course, Mitch McConnell was saying, we are not going to help you uh, pass your giant bills by caving to your demand that the debt ceiling be raised right now to make it easy. And he eventually said, okay, we'll give you another couple of months, and then we're really not doing it again. So you better get everything together so that when you want to pass legislation, if you can pass legislation, uh, you can add the debt ceiling to your reconciliation package, which, owing to the wildly complicated rules going on here, can pass with only 51 votes, meaning the 50 Democrats or the 48 Democrats and two independents that caucus with the Democrats and Vice President Kamala Harris. And we Republicans will not participate in that budget-busting socialistic process. Uh, So you better get your (laughs) act straight and get uh, all your ducks in a row. Um, So the general portrait of this, both on the left and the right, is that McConnell blinked. McConnell caved. And I'm just not entirely sure that's true. Uh, what McC- And I just want to read to you something from Yuval Levin, our friend Yuval Levin, a very brilliant, very dense piece uh, in National Review yesterday called The Democrats' Debt Ceiling Debacle. And he lays out every reason that the Democrats are having trouble dealing with all of this and how they could have dealt with it differently and didn't. But um, he says here, I think the deal happened because the Democrats turned out not to have 50 votes for any solution to the problem. 
Until the middle of this week, Mitch McConnell was reasonably confident that by standing firm, he could get them to just use the reconciliation process. And it was only on Wednesday that he came to realize that Chuck Schumer, that's the Senate Majority Leader, simply didn't have the power over his conference to make that or any other way forward for the Democrats happen, even if Schumer wanted to. What happened here was not so much the Democrats hanging together as it was the Democrats failing to reach 50 on anything. And what Yuval does earlier in the piece is sort of lay out every possible scenario that could that they could have used short of needing McConnell's or the Republicans' votes. So although there was certainly an element of McConnell blinking, just as there was an element of Schumer doing so, the reason McConnell blinked was not that the Democrats managed to behave like a majority party, but that it became clear to McConnell that at this point, there is no majority party in the Senate. There are 48 Democrats, there are 50 Republicans, and there are two Democrats, at least who are willing to stick their heads up and be these Democrats, who are saying, we don't like the direction you guys are trying to pull us in with trillions and trillions of dollars of spending that we don't agree with either practically or ideologically. So Yuval's thesis is that McConnell saved Schumer's bacon a little because he knows the debt ceiling needs to be raised. It has to be raised or the country will go into default. Calamities can result. That is true. And uh, in previous sets of circumstances like this, in 2006, the Democrats voted en masse against raising the debt ceiling because they knew the Republicans would do it. And this time, the Republicans said, okay, you do it. And, you know, you do it the way we did it. You use reconciliation and pass an increase in the, in the debt limit, and they couldn't do it. So is this McConnell blinking? Is this McConnell being a responsible legislator? Is this... Um, what is it? I'm not sure. This was sort of my take the minute the deal was announced, which I think was Wednesday night. Um, that, to me, struck me as um, rather brilliant, in fact, uh, in part because, well, he did back off the original position, which is we're not doing anything. We're not helping you at all. And you're going to have to pass a debt ceiling via reconciliation, which would have been a budget bill. And in this fanciful use of universe in which Democrats could have agreed on uh, rules to amend the debt ceiling in this reconciliation package, it would have inc included more spending. Now, it wouldn't have, it's unlikely that would have ever happened, but there would have been something there to mollify progressives. Um, and that's not going to happen now. And what is going to happen is they're going to keep this internecine fighting going on for the foreseeable future. Now, after this deal was announced, Schumer said, okay, we're going to have some sort of a vote at the end of the month on October 31st on something that our negotiations are going to produce that's going to have everybody happy and Senate is going to be on board and Manchin's going to be on board and we're going to vote. Uh, I'd be surprised if negotiations produce something uh, that the whole caucus is amenable to in that short a period of time. I don't think that's possible. Uh, and in the interim, we have now a baked in crisis you know, on December 31st that's going to continue to dominate the conversation the closer we get to that deadline. And it's going to loom over these negotiations uh, and keep the Republican conference in line, obviously, and continue to fracture Democrats. So what McConnell has basically done has ensured that the status quo we've been privy to over the last several months, which is nothing short of, uh, of you know, the prelude to a Democratic civil war, that that just is frozen in amber now. It's going to continue for the remainder of the year, for the most part. Uh, I think it's it's pretty savvy. It's it's interesting, isn't it, that, you know, the left has totally vilified McConnell um, without recognizing that he actually is an institutionalist. He cares about how the Senate works. He knows all the arcane rules. He has used them effectively over decades of service. So he I agree with Noah. I mean, in some ways, because this is only a temporary uh, reprieve for the Democrats, when this comes up again and the same arguments happen again, he can plausibly say, look, I went I even went against members of my own coalition. He was criticized for doing what he did this week and gave them an out and they still can't figure it out. So stop saying it's a Republican problem. This is a Democratic problem. And this kind of will th this will prove it to be such when they can't down the line 
fix the same problem again. And I will say the rhetoric that Schumer chose to use, which is which is the reason behind this picture of Joe Manchin with his head in his hands uh, on the Senate uh, floor last night, was ridiculous. I mean, he, he there there were any number of tax he could have taken at that moment, and he chose to say, "See, see, the Republicans are the problem here. The Republicans are the problem." And I'm not sure that's really gonna. He's not going to be able to repeat that same argument down the line when they still can't fix it. And it's like a textbook advanced course in negotiating when you provide your adversary with a, a face-saving way out of a crisis they've committed to, they've created. And they jump at it. They leap at it. They take it the very second they're offered it because they don't want to be in this crisis that they've engineered for themselves. They don't have a way out of the corner they painted themselves into. And then suddenly realize the second that they've taken the deal you've offered them that it's actually worse than the conditions that they were in before. Because you don't hear any Democrats saying, well, you do. You hear some of them attempting this line that we, you know, we won, we negotiate, we out negotiated Republicans, but it's, it rings so utterly hollow because the fractious infighting that typified the state of affairs before still typifies the state of affairs today. Um, I, I, I get Republicans like Lindsey Graham and others are vexed by this change in strategy. But it's not a change in strategy. It's it's a change in tactics. It's very different. We need to stop for a second and 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 just lay out what happened between uh, Schumer and Manchin last night, uh, since Christine mentioned it, um, with the photograph that is going to be used in ads. I think I'm not sure whose ads or where, but. Um, here's the New York Post's rendering of the story. Senator Joe Manchin couldn't bear to watch Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer's floor speech Thursday night covering his face and ultimately walking away during the comments. Republicans played a dangerous and risky partisan game, and I am glad that their brinkmanship did not work, Schumer began his remarks, with Manchin sitting behind him in view of the camera. As Schumer cast blame on Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, Minority Leader Mitch McConnell and GOP Senators, Manchin first appeared to shake his head then pressed his face to his palms in dismay. Quote, Leader McConnell and Senate Republicans insisted they wanted a solution to the debt ceiling, but said Democrats must raise it alone by going through a drawn-out, convoluted, and risky reconciliation process. Less than a minute later, as Schumer continued targeting McConnell, Manchin was seen walking away. Afterward, outside the chamber, Manchin condemned the speech. I didn't think it was appropriate at this time we have to de-weaponize. You can't be playing politics. None of us can on both sides. Civility is gone. Okay, now, civility is gone. That's a, you know, what Manchin was doing here, I think, was signaling two things. One of which is, once again, we find ourselves in the bizarre situation, which is the same situation as the infrastructure bill, where something bipartisan happened for the first time in forever in Washington, where people like the Senate Majority Leader and the Senate Minority Leader or whatever managed to come together on something. And and even if it only carries, you know, a, a, a fifth of the Republican caucus, uh, it only had to be a fifth because they only needed to get over 60 votes to to get this through regular orders and the thing to do at times like this in the course of american history is to say it's a great relief we've done something good for the american people we've stepped away from the brink um i thanks i thank leader mcconnell in fact given the fact that republican very conservative republicans uh, led by the former president are screaming at mcconnell for being a rhino and giving in and not fighting ted cruz and a uh, whole bunch of people and 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 these all these votes against this um Schumer could stick the dagger in a little bit by praising McConnell's willingness to cave to him in the guise of praising bipartisanship but that's not what he wanted to do he wanted to say they're bad they're bad they're bad they're bad even though they did you know they gave him 40 or 45 percent of what he wanted which is at least to get away from the cliff that's why Manchin said civility is gone more important schumer can't afford to piss Manchin off this is noah's point in in you know in in chrysalis there is no 
reconciliation bill in which a trillion, you know, two trillion dollars is spent if Joe Manchin doesn't vote for it. Let's not even talk about whether Joe Manchin votes for it. Kirsten Cinemas may not vote for it. That's why Yuval says in that piece, Schumer doesn't have a Senate majority. He doesn't he can't get to 50 on anything except the infrastructure bill, which they got to 50 on. They in fact got to 69 on. And progressives in the House are holding it hostage to the bill that likely cannot be passed. And that it is doesn't con- exist. What? It literally on. doesn't exist. Well, whatever. I mean, it, but, you, it but doesn't matter that it doesn't exist. There will be something that will eventually be voted on. But so Noah said that this is not a change in strategy. It's a change in tactics. But I think if you have uh, Trump and Lindsey Graham out there uh, pulling their hair out over this, I think it's because there are two strategies sort of floating around there. And I don't know that it's a change from one to the other. But if you think this was a bad if you're on the right and you think this was a bad thing that McConnell did, it's because you're flirting with the strategy that that the Republicans should let the Democrats burn the whole thing down, that that we should that that let them let them be responsible for the U.S. defaulting. Right. Because if, if you're saying that they can't get the votes no matter what. That is a different strategy than let's l- let them look like they're in disarray and we're and and we are by contrast a responsible party. Well, there was also this looming threat to the filibuster, and I don't necessarily think that would have materialized in anything because the same people who are objecting to the reconciliation bill would ab- reject the idea of amending the legislative filibuster even for the purposes of uh, you know passing a, a debt ceiling increase and preserving America's credit rating, um, and that was kind of spooky to me in a theoretical way because you never know where that conversation can go and it would be disastrous frankly in my view to i mean the legislative filibuster but that sort of loomed large and but um, only but it's only a process it's a prospect that Repu- it's a prospect that democrats should reject as well because republicans would be forced in the event of such an uh, escalation in tactics to do the exact same thing in the majority but it doesn't matter because that was all a fantasy. That is all the pundit class and Democratic activists talking to each other. Manchin has said flatly he will not support the end of the filibuster. Well, the Joe Biden they, said that this was going to happen. I mean, it wasn't just it wasn't just pundits talking about this. Joe Biden himself said he was open to well, it. Well, he did his own it. pledge not to touch the filibuster. Well, look, he dangled it, and then some of the McConnell caved. Uh, analysis says McConnell was worried that they might actually just up and do it if they had to, and he wanted to save the in- institutional prerogative of the filibuster. But I don't believe that. I think there is an enormous amount of internal chatter among Democrats who are find themselves unable to hear the things that are being said that they don't want to listen to. I mean, it is ostrich behavior. They don't want to hear that they can't get everything. And so the idea is we can't get everything because of the Republicans' mansion and cinema. So we're going to, you know, end the filibuster, which requires mansion and cinema's vote to end the filibuster because they need 51 votes and they don't want to hear it. So then, and McConnell is hearing it. So you look at all of that and you say, what McConnell did here was say, all right, look, as Yuval would say, Schumer's basically in a trap of his and the Democrats' own devising. Uh, and, you know, this is, get, this is getting ugly and, and stupid and all my donor, you know, people are yelling at me about how dangerous this is. So we'll give them two months. And tactically, what's going to improve for them? Look at the situation Biden and the Democrats find themselves in. Their polls are tanking. They are losing political authority by the day, not only with their own people, and or they, they can give their own people, but with independents, with everybody who's going to vote in 2022, 
their ability to sway public opinion or to convince people that what they want to do is valuable, worthy, and they can use it to put pressure, particularly on cinema, let's say, just for the sake of argument, um, gets worse and worse and worse. So come December, how is this going to be any better for, for Schumer and 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 Biden and the progressives? It's not. Well, and they don't seem... So the progressives, particularly uh, notable that Bernie Sanders held a press conference Wednesday whose only purpose seemed to be to bash his Democratic colleagues. Well, not his colleagues because he's not a Democrat, but to bash Cinema and Manchin. He was asked explicitly if he condemned the tactics that have been used to hound cinema in particular, being followed into the bathroom, being filmed. And the guy who, who whose avid, crazy supporter tried to kill a bunch of Republicans a few years ago wouldn't condemn that tactic, which is pretty awful. And I think you know, there are a lot of the, the, the progressives seem to be in, in some sort of high where they don't understand what's going on around them. But even the American people who don't follow these kinds of detailed negotiations going on in, in Congress right now can see, which is the, the hubris. It's, it's really bordering on hubris. They are just so ecstatic that they now control this party because they effectively do. And they've got the president in their pocket. So okay, that Abe. hubris might actually lead in the next month or so to a complete disaster for them if they don't calm down and start looking at how the institution is supposed to function. Okay. So, Abe, my friend Mark Halperin says this. He says, if it weren't for the progressives, Biden's numbers would be in the low 30s. So it is politically understandable that he is retreating to his base at a time in which he is seeing sinking approval because he needs the people that he has not to desert him. And if he tacked to the center uh, or did something where he acknowledged, although apparently he's acknowledging, you know, behind the scenes that the number for the reconciliation bill is going to go down from 3.5 to 2.2, which is already $700 billion more than Manchin says he will support as though he's negotiating with himself on what number he can tolerate. That's fine. But, you know, he's not the issue. But he's got to stand with the progressives because they're all he has. So that's one theory. Um, the other theory is that uh, they don't, you know, they're back in the, they're back. They There's a theory in political science about, um, or in electoral politics, about using your base and and ginning up so much enthusiasm among your base that you can deal with the collapse of support with independence and stuff like that. A base election, particularly in midterms, right? Like we're coming up in 2022. The base loves you. They will drag themselves over glass to vote for you. And you can... You know, you can avert the evil decree, as we say on on Yom Kippur. But Trump tried that in 2018. Remember the caravans? Remember all of that? And it was a huge disaster. It was a colossal disaster. Why Biden would be looking at the political layout of the last several elections which all turned on people switching their votes. It was Obama to Trump voters that won Trump the election in 2016. It was Trump to Democratic voters that won Democrats the House uh, and Senate in 2018. And it was suburbanites leaving Republicans and voting, you know, leaving Trump and voting for Biden that won Biden the election in 2020. It is vote switching that wins elections, not base turnout. That is a delusion, but I think that's where they are. I don't think that uh, he's embracing the progressives because that's all he has. Um, I think he is embracing the progressives because he fears not to do so would mean them coming at him in a way that he cannot sustain. Um, so I, I, th I think it's sort of pure political intimidation. Well, and which, and which is which is a, very, a different calculation from Trump. Uh, Trump Trump embraced that base because he was right there with them. 
Well, and, and not to harp on this point, which I have a couple of times over the last few weeks, but the progressives want something different than what the moderates and and even a more aware Biden would have wanted. The, the, the sort of bipartisan signing ceremony for the infrastructure bill is a good look for a president who claims he's a uniter, not a divider. All this, you know, it kind of could have fulfilled some of his campaign rhetoric and calm some of the moderates in his party. But the progressives, for the progressives, that's a sign of loss, right? Compromise is loss. And they're showing that with their strategy. They are being consistent. It's the moderates and, and quite frankly, Biden, who's who's kind of not clear about what he's trying to do here. Yeah, I mean, the, the, part of the challenge is there's there's kind of no way to stick by them because nothing is enough, right? It's It's if you you think you're maximalist enough for them in, until you wake up the next day and and there's some there's something else that you need to do well that's always the problem with uh the world uh in which um the sort of most the loudest and most extreme voices in each party uh sort of control the media coverage which is pretty much the case i mean on the right uh, Trump is still the dominating figure, not McConnell, not other – nobody else has arisen to be a counter voice or a different kind of voice. And that's not the role McConnell plays in any case. He doesn't play for the cameras, quite the opposite. And and the progressives control the media because the media are with them fundamentally. And in each case, you have apocalyptic rhetoric. You have – uh, you have an idea that any compromise with the other side is a form of selling your soul to the devil. And and that Biden promised that it would be otherwise will remain one of the great broken promises in American political history. He said, I'm not going to be Trump. And if I'm right, absent the tweets and the rhetoric, he's pretty much Trump. I mean, he's pretty much Trump in the sense that, in the sense that his entire political future is now staked on this uh, coalition um, that really isn't the thing that got him elected. By the way, so um, so it's a it's a weird set of circumstances. So we're going to have two months of brinkmanship now, and in those two months. If you're not subscribing to the to dividendcafe.com and the dctoday.com from our friends at the Bonson Group, that three billion dollar under management financial services and management company uh, run by David Bonson, if you're not reading those newsletters and tracking what the effects of these debates are having not only on the markets here but abroad and what the negotiations that will be ongoing in the House and Senate do to um, the uncertainty question uh, that hovers over the economy, are we going to charge back? Are we not charging back? Uh, are people staying on the sidelines because they don't really know what's going to happen? This is the best place on a daily and weekly basis to get this kind of information that you need to understand the daily machinations of the market and the weekly machinations of the world economy. The DC Today and DividendCafe.com. Go to DividendCafe.com and subscribe to these two newsletters. You will thank me for doing so. From the Bonson Group, the antidote to the intellectual spaghetti of the financial services and management industry. So I'm talking about Trump. So, uh, you know, <clears throat> Trump's having a rally in Iowa. Um, and as he is having the rally in Iowa this weekend, everyone there is bending the knee. Chuck Grassley, who has decided at the age of 275,311 to run again for office, uh, is going to be there in order to bend the knee a little bit and, <clears throat> you know, and sort of get Trump to say nice things about him. Um, and I don't know whoever else is, is going to be there. Um, and, you know, Trump is on the sidelines uh, kibitzing and firing rhino bullets at uh, at people, and uh, playing a larger role in the national conversation because of his the fact that his lawyer directed the subpoenaed uh, White House officials who were asked to provide documents relating to the January sixth uprising. Uh, he had been directed under the under the rules of executive privilege not to supply those documents to the 
uh, select committee or whatever. It's not a select committee. I don't even know what it is um, since the Republicans wouldn't vote for it. Um, uh, that is that is studying this. Uh, there is a poll the Des Moines Register just did that shows Trump uh, with a 53-43 approval rating in Iowa. Uh, Iowa's not really a bellwether state uh, anymore. There's no reason to look at it that way. Um, but uh, this is an indication among many other indications that Republicans have forgiven or have decided not to care about or whatever what happened on January 6th. And um, if he doesn't, if he doesn't run again, I'm, I'm a monkey's uncle because he's certainly behaving like he's going to run again, I think. Um, yeah, there's plenty Trump, of, like, there's a, yeah. there's a Wall Street Journal piece today on this, uh, you know, his upcoming trip to Iowa. And it's got a whole bunch of Republican strategists on the record who are saying, you know, yeah, he's very popular, but we don't really know if he's the best voice of the party. And there's some debate over whether, you know, a better messenger could be out there for us. And, and it's not going to be a coronation. You know, everybody there do want somebody else to, to challenge him. And But there's um, there's a bit of a, a hostage crisis here that's frozen uh, political ambitions on the right because the kind of will he, won't he speculation about him has has led a lot of uh, otherwise willing Republican contenders, aspirants for, for the nomination to sort of hide their ambition, or in the case of, for example, um, <clears throat> Nikki Haley, to just be utterly contradictory and cloying in her efforts to seek power and authority while also being as willing as anybody to defer power and authority to Donald Trump if and when he wants it, um, which is kind of obsequious. Um, but yeah, I mean, as long as this dynamic holds and Republican strategists who know he's a he's a, a just a weight around their necks are unwilling to say as much in clearer terms and Republicans are unwilling to internalize what they're intending to insinuate. You know, everybody's walking on eggshells here. But as long as that happens, then he would be even even if Donald Trump doesn't really want to run. And I can envision a scenario in which he doesn't really want to run, but likes the position he's in now, which has all the authority and none of the responsibility. Um, he might be compelled to do it just because he has he's painted himself into this corner. Um, so let's talk about January 6th and the, and the Republican and conservative reactions to January 6th, because the memory holing is very frightening. Um, you know, we are increasingly being told by by the sort of intellectual elite of the right that January 6th was a nothing burger. It was a silly event that didn't really matter. And now the government is, you know, treating the people who went a little too far, you know, uh, with Soviet style gulag tactics. Uh, and uh, it was, it's a hoax. It's Jan the January 6th insurrection is a hoax. It was a hoax perpetrated. It's no different from the Russia hoax. It's no different from any other hoax. It's a hoax. Roger Kimball of the New Criterion gave a speech at Hillsdale to this very effect. New Criterion is a highbrow arts magazine, uh, the conservative magazine dedicated mostly to the, you know, to, to, the, to the high arts. And yet this is, and runs and counter books, a major publishing house. And this is the kind of thing that he is telling, you know, impressionable college students at Hillsdale is the truth about something that we watched with our own eyes. We saw hundreds of people storm the Capitol building. And that Victor Davis Hansen, uh, another prominent conservative intellectual, former contributor to commentary, one of the great experts on the classical world, is walking around saying Ashley Babbitt was assassinated. What about poor Ashley Babbitt? Ashley Babbitt being the woman who was shot by a Capitol Police officer while she was climbing through the window, having had, you know, through the door, having had, you know, multiple 20, 30, 40 minutes of people screaming that she should not do so. Um, and, you know, she's now a martyr. And I am... This I frankly find this terrifying. I mean, I find the the fact that we are having the wh who are you going to believe me or your lying eyes 
conversation on the right because people on the right don't like the fact that they have to reckon with what happened there. And so what they're saying is either what happened didn't happen or it was nothing or it was a no, it was a little bit of a it was a silly bad that people overreacted and and all of that. And all Even of that before January 6th we were all talking about how the Republican primary in 24 or 23 was going to be a referendum on Donald Trump in one fashion or another, uh, even if he wasn't part of the part of the uh, field of candidates. But now it looks like it's just going to be a referendum on January 6th. Well, for now. And if, the, if that becomes the case, I mean, it, it will have a serious deleterious effect on the appeal of whatever candidate emerges from that, because it looks like now the debate is going to be on who can thread the needle the best and apologize for what happened while also, you know, maintaining their appeal to all the people who actually remember watching it live. Uh, I don't, I don't see how the Republican brand escapes that kind of contest unscathed. But I, I, I hate to say this, but I think um, what it is or isn't a referendum on will largely be a matter of between now and then, which side does something more, um, sort of wildly publicly disruptive on a massive level, right? Because we're, we're kind of in this teeter totter between who's the greater threat to uh, uh, democracy and the good working order of the United States and this sort of um, you know calm civic life. Uh, if 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 there are a, a wave of of social justice riots between now and then. Well, then that that changes things. If there's if there's a, a, a another sort of right wing uh, uh, demonstration uh, that, you know, goes kinetic and and becomes a violent event, then then that becomes uh, uh, the, the matter of the of the referendum. I, I don't I don't know. I mean, it's a horrifying place to sort of be, you know, to have the debate be held hostage by one or the other of these extremes. But I, I kind of think that's where we're at. Well, and there's there's a way in which the you know the the sort of these intellectuals on the right who are seizing on January sixth and the Ashley Babbitts as as martyrs, the the kernel of truth that they start that totally pernicious argument with is the media overreaction and the overheated rhetoric of some Democratic lawmakers about January sixth. I mean, people saying this was the worst thing since the Civil War. That not that the lack of perspective and context, not being able to say here's this was terrible this was awful this was unprecedented in many ways here's what we're doing to ensure that this doesn't happen in the future and we should absolutely prosecute these people etc cetera, etc cetera. the problem of course is that on the right there aren't enough political leaders saying that either they're they're just kind of they want it to go away the ones who say anything at all kind of really are uncomfortable calling what that was what it was i mean you can't even i i've been in discussions in in public with people they're like well should we call it an insurrection should we call what they don't even want to decide on a label for it because it look it's bad it's just bad it's bad for republicans they should acknowledge it and they should talk about how they're going to make sure that doesn't happen again and how that works well the other thing is that the democrats will or you know who people on this committee are going to release a report at some point and there are two things that will come out of that report, depending on some of the things that happen that Trump is, you know, attempting uh, using this claim of executive privilege, which should not be poo-pooed. Like, this is a serious claim because the White House staff, unlike cabinet officials and things like that, the White House staff does not work, is not overseen by Congress. The only oversight that Congress has over the White House staff is budgetary. Now, the White House is a co-equal branch. Uh, you know, the, le- the executive branch is co-equal with the with the legislative, and it doesn't work for the executive branch. And uh, you know, uh, when you chip away at these things, I was just thinking, like <clears throat> Republicans win in twenty twenty two, twenty twenty three. You think they aren't going to do the Biden administration? What Democrats did to the Trump administration once they won the House back, and you know, in twenty nineteen. You think they're not going to try to impeach him? You think they're not going to, you know, demand records and do all that stuff um, and and try to force people's hands? That's what happens when you play in this sandbox. Nonetheless, there will be some kind of a report, and it's going to be an interesting Warshock test because the report will surely have bunches of new information about things that were going on 
that sh- that will shock the conscience uh, and and worry people who are who are genuinely concerned and honestly concerned about the future of our democratic republic and how it can be twisted or threatened internally when people who don't care about these things take charge. And on the other hand, the report is likely to be written in a way that will make it easily discreditable, at least on the right, that it will feature language, rhetoric, allegations, charges, uh, wild speculations that will also make it dismissible. And we will therefore be, after its release, in exactly the same position we were <laughs> we're in now, uh, which is that um, the people who want to believe that it was the worst thing that ever happened will have material, and the people who want to, you know, memory hole it will say, well, look at the, this is ridiculous. How dare you talk this way? And all of that and 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 that will be the confrontation and we will end up in exactly the same place we were before there are there are going to be some you know high water moments in the question about Trump's future um weird ones like what happens with Liz Cheney's reelection campaign in Wyoming if she is ousted in a primary or somehow loses in the general or whatever that will be a telling indication that uh uh you know that that the punishment structure, even with Trump out of office, is still very strong, and everybody better be afraid. And at the same time, you know, if Liz Cheney, the daughter of the former vice president of the United States and the man who was considered the most evil person before Trump by many people, uh, is somebody who can't, you know, uh, who can't survive, um, what is this going to mean for, you know, ordinary conservative politicians everywhere and i i don't know the answer to that we but with that of evidence yeah, to suggest that the cult of donald trump isn't necessarily as strong as it is <clears throat> in online environments on cable news and on capitol hill you had a primary race in texas where the trump back candidate lost um these sort of things are a little bit more local than we give them credit for and are not necessarily indicative of the national environment in ways that you know nationally focused pundits tend to uh, impose their own their own pre-existing convictions on on these sort of contests. So, you know, that could also present a false picture. And it's not and just to, you know, introduce one more element here, because the underlying thing about January 6th isn't necessarily about the violence per se, but whether Donald Trump is the legitimately elected president of the United States right now, right, right this second. Um, Rep. Andy Biggs, I think, is uh, Arizona, was recently asked whether, you know, Donald Trump won the who won Arizona and he goes we don't know we can't say that's the that's the pivot point that's the central argument that will be litigated by Republican voters right now as it stands in 2023 in you know barring what what Abe says correctly smartly anticipating future events will change the trajectory of that conversation but in the absence of those events it will be a, a discussion over whether Donald Trump is just receiving his his due what he already is justly owed by our system, um, the return, you know, return to the White House. Uh, And I don't know if Republicans are capable of arguing that. There will be Republicans who will want to talk about January 6th because that's easier to talk about than the mythology around Donald Trump's election laws. I mean, it's also the case that I think, as Abe points out, about whether, you know, superseding events will just, you know, cast a larger shadow. It will be pretty far back in the rearview mirror, January 6th. And and the problem is that it's, the power of, of evoking it uh, will probably remain as strong on the Democratic side and on the liberal side as it is now, but that will not be the case on the Republican side, where the memory holding is very conscious and is having, it's clearly having, an effect. I mean, if you if you are a Fox News viewer and you never see anything about it, or you see almost nothing about it, you're going to forget about it over time. If you're you know in one of those Facebook algorithm situations where you're not going to get the news that says that the preposterous cyber ninja recount in Maricopa County itself showed that Biden had won Maricopa County in Arizona by a larger, not a smaller margin. Uh, once they got through their vote recounting and that therefore Arizona was legitimately won by Trump 
by excuse me by Biden. Um, they they don't know that. So and, you know, Andy Biggs is staying there. Andy Biggs knows it, and he is a disgusting slime ball who should be thrown into a sewage tank and see if he can swim. But congratulations, no one's going to throw him into a sewage tank. And I've said it before, but it just bears mentioning again right now. The fact that Trump has been thrown off social media um, is also a contributing factor to this, because had he not been, he would still be out there talking about it every day, how he, how how the how the election was rigged. And he would be sort of beclowning himself further every day, doing the thing that that most Americans hated about him most. Um, he would he would he would have been keeping that up. They did him a tremendous service in keeping him from doing that for years. And, and that allows that allows the country to memory hole all sorts of stuff. Right. Guys, uh, you know, let's talk about great cooking, great restaurants, uh, uh, great meals. Uh, how, how, are the, how is that food made so well? The short answer is that great chefs have the access to the right kitchen tools. And with made-ins professional quality cookware and kitchenware, anyone is capable of making restaurant-quality food at home. If you're serious about cooking, you should invest in your kitchen tools. Made-ins cookware and kitchenware products are used by thousands of the world's best chefs. If quality and craftsmanship is important to you, you should check out Made-in. It's the cookware and kitchenware brand that works with renowned chefs and artisans to produce some of the world's best pots, pans and wine glasses these products are made to last they offer a lifetime guarantee their cookware distributes heat heat evenly and can easily go from the stovetop to the oven this is professional quality cookware made for those who love to cook with the finest materials made in partners with renowned craftsmen to make premium kitchen tools available directly to you without the markup 40,000 five-star reviews and their products are used by some of the world's best chefs at michelin starred restaurants around the world made in Better cookware for better meals. Right now, Made In is offering our listeners 15% off your first order with promo code COMMENTARY. This is the best discount available anywhere online for Made In products. Go to madeincookware.com slash commentary and use promo code COMMENTARY for 15% off your first order. That's M-A-D-E-I-N-C-O-O-K-W-A-R-E dot com slash commentary. Use promo code COMMENTARY. Um. Where should we go now? <laughs> uh, it's uh, there's so much to talk about. Um, we never talked about Taiwan. Okay, we, we kept we kept teasing our listeners that we we're going to talk about Taiwan. I bring that up only to throw that hot potato over to Noah. <laughs> okay, well, so, we did get some news. We did get some news yesterday okay. from the Wall Street Journal. I mean, we will go yes. back a little bit in the um, <clears throat> in the last couple of weeks to fill readers in, but um, yesterday. Wall Street Journal reported that for the better part of a year, for nearly a year across two administrations, um, American service personnel have been on the ground in Taiwan uh, supporting and training and assisting local forces in uh, anticipation of some sort of a conflict, as scary as that sounds, in the in the last several months, but ratcheting up over the course of the last week. Um Forces with the People's Liberation Army, air forces, have been sending flights into the uh, air control zone around um, around Taiwan, which is not the same thing as airspace. Airspace is sovereign territory. A violation of that would result in uh, confrontations over the skies, perhaps a forced uh, forced downings, not shoot downings, but you know a forced uh, forced downing of a plane, to, you know, to surrender uh, on a tarmac in Taipei. Um, but just, you know, violations of the air control zone, which force, you know, fighters to scramble and to, uh, to you know, intercept them. And it's a prov- provocative action, but it's not an act of war. It's the sort of thing that we do. We do it to Russia constantly. Russia does it to us constantly. Um, it's, it's a common tactic, albeit a provocative one. But nevertheless, something that is concerning. Uh, American forces have been conducting um, more transits through the Taiwan Strait, which Beijing uh, views as provocative. Uh, good on the Biden administration. And this all coincides with uh, the um, efforts by the Biden administration now to export very secretive nuclear technology, nuclear submarine technology to Australia, which caused something of a rift with France. We talked about that before. I'm disinclined to 
put a lot of weight behind that as a geostrategic event. Um, but it is strategically important in the Indo-Pacific region. Um, Beijing is feeling squeezed and it's acting like it, uh, which is erratic and um, discouraging and disheartening and kind of concerning. Um, but in what we're signaling quite clearly um, to, to the Biden administration's credit is that we will not allow the sort of event that occurred in 2014 in Crimea. We will not allow the events of Afghanistan to uh, uh, give Beijing the impression that we would not respond with force to a provocation in the strait or worse, something uh, along the lines of an effort to reintegrate Taiwan into, into Beijing's orbit. Um, so, you know, I think that's actually more stabilizing than destabilizing, but you wouldn't know it from the headlines. The headlines are scary. Can I raise and answer a question, uh, a political question in regards to this? So the um, Trumpy isolationist right, who says that uh, foreign conflicts are none of our business and, in fact, uh, are doing a great disservice to Americans at home uh, who are being ignored in, in deference to peoples abroad, uh, are also China hawks. Uh, they also, you know, they also think we've been way too easy on China uh, for for way too long. They have a point there as well. Um, so the question is, so where would they stand on uh, our being robustly involved in defending Taiwan against China? And the answer is they'd be dead against it. For, for right. all their for all their China hawkishness, um, because the isolationism uh, trumps the 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 their China hawkishness, and because it, if it were to be done by this administration, uh, beating up on on the administration would would take precedent over everything else. Well, so they're isolationist, which means they like tariffs which means they want tariff they want to they want to conduct economic warfare right uh but they're 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 very 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 much opposed to um actual open conflict as everybody should be you shouldn't want open conflict with china you shouldn't want there to be you shouldn't want one to threaten uh, china to threaten taiwan by the way i mean this is a very uh, big I'm just sorry just to, to interrupt because I don't think that's how it would happen if it actually happened as nightmarish right. as the scenario is in the event that China did make a, well, a real concerted effort to militarily take over uh, Taiwan. Our assets would be hit simultaneously. Our assets in the in the Pacific would be hit look, instantly. Uh, we, right. They would disable our naval capacity or capacity to project power in the Indo-Pacific. China would have to respond. So China, there, there would be no debate yeah. over whether we would have to respond. We would be in the war. Oh, sure. Oh, oh sure there would be. Of course there would be. What do you there mean? There would be debate, be? but it would there. be debate around what actions we are already taking in retaliation for the attacks on our naval assets. Uh, I think, first of all, China does not want to attempt a military takeover of Taiwan. We should... They did. <laughs> no, there was a war on Taiwan after the, after, you know, after the Maoists took over. It is not, it is not fertile ground or 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 a good area in which to conduct you know that kind of those kind of actions first of all it's an island it's very hard to land huge numbers of forces on an island number one the, the terrain is bad for this there was a reason that the chinese gave up trying to retake taiwan uh, after after the um, the nationalists retreated to it uh, and so they would be uh, seeking to do it in, you know, in another way, in a kind of, um, you know, blockading, uh, you know, bend to, you know, bend to us, come into some consolidation with us, some deal with us that really wouldn't trigger uh, any of this, you know, uh, I would say this isolationist, um, you know, sort of like uh, objection uh, to American involvement, because we would then say no. and. I don't know. There would be a, there would be an interesting kind of standoff. But it's a, it's a, the thing that we haven't brought up, of course, is to what extent China is testing us because of what happened in Afghanistan. That is, that is the short, medium, and longer term question. 
uh, if we are withdrawing from the world scene, China is going to the cost to China to a, to testing out adventurism will be lower and lower and lower. Uh, and we are clearly trying to prevent them from doing so, but doing it on the cheap. A couple hundred guys training people in Taiwan. We send some carriers. You know, we have some submarines floating around that then crash into each other or whatever. We don't even know what happened there. We're doing it in the, you know, in the least intrusive way possible while signaling our seriousness of intent. And at some point, if the Chinese want to be really provocative or want to really, really see where they can go with this, our response is going to look piddling. And then who knows where things go from there. Um, let me talk to you about Bolin Branch sheets. Uh, boy, people love these sheets. I don't have them yet, I'm, I'm afraid. But um, so I apologize to Bolin Branch for not being able to say I love them myself, but I have know many people who have them, including my friends on the Glob podcast, who say that these ultra soft organic sheets are transparently sourced and produced in safe, fair conditions. You'll feel a difference. You know you're making one. Ball and Branch start with a mission to produce the highest quality sheets on the market and make the world a better place in the process. How did they do that? They, it was founded by husband and wife, Scott and Missy Tannen, who wanted to do what's right by continuously building a fairer and better supply chain for the improvement of the entire future textile industry. It partners with family-owned businesses that align with the same values and standards. They're pledging to double U.S. assembly jobs this year. They're loved by three U.S. presidents. Buttery, soft, lightweight sheets and 100% organic cotton sateen weave, perfect for all seasons in a variety of colors and all sizes from Twin Up to California King. Made to a higher standard with toxin-free processes and fair trade certification. To experience the best sheets you've ever felt, choose Ball and Branch. You can try them worry-free for 30 nights with free shipping and returns. And my listeners get an exclusive 15% off their first set of sheets with promo code commentary at bowlandbranch.com. That's Bowl and Branch, B-O-L-L-A-N-D-B-R-A-N-C-H.com, promo code commentary uh two last little nuggets one is that as we were uh doing this podcast the job numbers for september came out and they're terrible goldman sachs was predicting there would be a six hundred thousand six hundred thousand uh increase in employment uh the number is one hundred ninety thousand. the interpretation is that the delta variant has continued to bite because the numbers uh, the number of, of of those employed in the leisure industry has gone up very slightly. Um, and also maybe the full effect of the ending of the national unemployment subvention uh, hasn't, you know, will really be felt in October and not in September. But this again is another data point against Democrats thinking that they can sort of work their will they're in charge. This is their country now. If there were a million new jobs, people would be feeling better and Biden would be getting the credit. But I want to move to another thing, which is something where the Biden administration has put itself in a position where it can't claim credit and it isn't claiming credit and the entire health establishment is refusing to take credit or moving toward, which is that according to the New York Times today, the number of new cases of covid in the United States fell under 100,000 for the first time in, I'm not two months, two and a half months. The numbers are now back to where they were in early August. The death toll is falling. Hospitalizations are down by two thirds. Um, and do you hear in anybody talk about how, hey, it looks like we may have broken the back of this thing? No, because they're still panicked about vaccination numbers, which are really high. <laughs> Well, Scott Gottlieb has, has said that, you know, we're actually entering the very last of the big waves of this thing. He's the only <clears throat> quote unquote public health official that I've heard articulate anything along those lines. But he's also out of the public health business, really. So he was totally Dr. Doom yeah. last year. So, you know, mm -hmm. if he's if he's if he's talking optimistically, that should be taken very seriously, his credentials on saying that the sky is falling are very, you know, are, are very robust. But we're still in the position where, uh, you know, Gail Walensky, the the head of the C, the uh, head of the CDC, 
said yesterday or the day before in telling people to get their flu shots, which is a perfectly fine thing for somebody like her to do, that they had to do this because they we can't overwhelm the emergency rooms because of the COVID surge and the flu. But hospitalizations and ICU are down two-thirds. It We're just not going to flood the emergency room. Stop scaring people unnecessarily. Scare them when it's necessary. <clears throat> they think that what they're supposed to do is walk around screaming at the top of their lungs about everything. They are wrong. They're not just wrong morally, and they're not wrong in terms of a self-governing citizenry. They're wrong as a matter of practical policy. We talked about this on the podcast, and I wrote about it for the blog, that it makes sense if you live in Idaho to talk about this as though it's still a, a an absolute you know, imperative emergency uh, that, could have, that threatens the integrity of the hospital system and all that. It doesn't make any sense to talk about this that way from Washington, D.C. or New York City or in you know western New Jersey where I am. It's just not. It is not a crisis nationally anymore. It's a regional crisis. And we have a whole system that developed around the idea that we can address crises regionally that don't take, you know, national uh, resources, devote national resources to them. You know, we wouldn't send FEMA to you know California when we're addressing a hurricane that hit Louisiana. It just doesn't make any sense. It's the sort of thing that I, I don't know why they can't pivot to um, to a more uh, you know regionally dedicated uh, crisis response, you know, something that's much more rapid and nimble than what we have right now that would, you know, address, address outbreaks when they appear regionally. I mean, that's literally what the CDC was, was designed to do. And the world health organization was designed to do to address, uh, you know, these diseases when they pop up where they pop up, but it's still, you know, it's still a pandemic. And by definition, that's not a regional crisis. So we can't definitely definitionally say COVID has become a regional issue, but just based on the map alone, you would think that it is, and we should behave as though it is. But the but our policymakers are still behaving in this weirdly contradictory fashion, right? So in San Francisco, the mayor, London Breed, has signaled that she might be willing to start reducing some of the mask mandates, the indoor mask mandates for places like bars and, and gyms where they uh, people can prove vaccination. Meanwhile, here in Washington, D.C., Muriel Bowser, my the world's worst mayor, perhaps second only to Bill de Blasio, uh, just announced that she's extending her emergency powers for COVID stuff through January, even though cases are down, deaths are down. There's, there's no legitimate public health reason for her to do that, except that she wants to keep spending all the federal money that's been pouring into the coffers here in D.C. from all the COVID relief. Um, but to extend her emergency powers allows her to continue to do things like uh, set quarantine rules for school students, uh, mask, we're all still masked up indoors, just just it's power. It's power that no longer comports with the public health facts. It's it's a, it's a lot of power, but it's also a lot of paranoia. Um, in Los Angeles, they just introduced a mask mandate for 12 plus. If you can't prove max vaccination status for 12 plus, you can't really walk in a door anywhere into any public space or private space um, because, you know, you're not allowed. This is the vaccine mandate. And that it was if it was a logic articulated in order to increase vaccination rates, that's one thing. But that's not how they talk about it. They talk about it as though that this this protects you, the vaccinated, from the scary unvaccinated when it's precisely reversed. You I mean, don't have anything to worry about if you're vaccinated. It's the unvaccinated who should be scared of you. Exactly right. It, the truth is. If you if we just go by the way this has happened seasonally in terms of rises and falls, there's probably going to be another uh, wave or wavelet that that comes, you know, in the fall and the winter. And uh, if it's like it did, happened last year, subsides at some point in in January. Um, but as as Noah says, I, or I, I'm I'm saying this, so he won't get blamed. Uh, so what? Uh, if you are vaccinated, it doesn't matter. Um, that is that is the larger point here, and that is the one that absolutely no public official will make. Well, no look, the central and the central. Fauci says our objective now should be to keep you from getting sick, not just hospitalized, right. not just right. dying, no, but, but keep you from contracting the right. disease. No, but the new battleground is going to be vaccinating uh, kids five to eleven. Uh, that will be approved presumably somewhere in, in, at the beginning of November. I'm very excited to get my 
11 year old vaccinated. Um, I understand that other people are not, uh, they're, they're, they're less comfortable with this than they are with themselves. Um, and then they were with getting vaccinated uh, by themselves and the death toll in the United States since February of 2020 of kids under the age of 11 remains somewhere around 250. Okay. Children under 11, zero to 11. There are almost 5 million people a lot. You know, it's, it's something like 45 million kids, 250 deaths. They don't really need to be vaccinated. I mean, I am happy to get my kid vaccinated, um, but that's the next fight. That's that's right. where, and then then this, of course, then allows that scenario to continue. That everybody who might be resistant is an anti-vaxer, and they're all Trumpkins, and they're all evil, and 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 they all just dance together in their gavot of of enjoyment at the spectacle of people dying, uh, hoping that people will die from this disease for not getting vaccinated. And in the case of people who are not going to die from not getting vaccinated, uh, they are still going to, you know, try to use the heavy hand of government to force that to happen. The entire culture is going to be arrayed against parents of young children who don't get their young children vaccinated. Um, and, and for all the reasons you say, they're going to be uh, attacked as Luddites and technophobes and vaccine conspiracy theorists, theorists, and whatever their calculation is not rational, even though you just articulated the rational basis for it. Uh, and I know people who are, um, they, uh, the uptake in the vaccine was their first priority. They raced out the door in February to get a shot. They couldn't be stopped. They jumped in line and they are queasy about giving this thing to their young children for a variety of reasons, but one of them being that they experienced a bad time on the second shot and they don't want their kids to experience that. And that's just, and, and most likely they will, because apparently the younger you are, the stronger your immune system is, the more you're likely you are to have an adverse reaction to the second dose of an mRNA vaccine. But again, a way, rational consideration, but one that is not going to be treated as such. It's going to be mocked and derided well, and you're going to be attacked be. as something awful to the social fabric. And you're going to, they're going to miss a boat here. It may be because uh, there is some talk that the FDA may approve a single dose for 5 to 11-year-olds, particularly using this logic. There is some talk about this. There have been three or four articles about it. Uh, and so um, given the fact that you get A – they're they're at very low risk, and B, you get eighty three percent of the protection that you're going to get from a vaccine from the first shot, which is why we call the second shot a booster, um, even though we're now also calling the third shot a booster. It may be more than sufficient, um, and so we'll see what happens there. That's that's one possibility. Anyway, we've we've kept you too long. Hope you have a wonderful weekend. Go see the James Bond movie, No Time to Die. I saw it last night, and it's fantastic. It is fantastic. You can read my review later today at freebeacon.com. I love this movie. I did not expect to. I didn't like the last three Bonds, and I thought that this was going to be another bad one, and it ain't. So that's my advice to you. And for Abe, Christina, Noah, I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning.